In our evening services, I've been trying to focus our attention on some of the parables of our Lord and Savior. And so tonight we'll be looking at a parable from Luke chapter 10. So I'd invite you to turn up me in your Bibles at this time to Luke chapter 10, a very familiar parable to, to all of us. Uh, Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 37, in a sermon that I've titled, More Than Just a Good Neighbor. More Than Just a Good Neighbor. Luke chapter 10, in a moment we'll read uh, some of these verses. Tonight we come to probably one of the most familiar parables that Jesus ever taught. Uh, this parable is so well known that it has become almost a, a common idiom for sacrificial kindness. It is a high compliment to call someone a good Samaritan. And what we find is that this idiom is extremely common among those who don't even profess to be Christians. We'll throw, people will throw around this term, a good Samaritan, just for someone who has a, a, a good act of kindness, a sacrificial act of kindness that is seen. And interestingly enough, our level of familiarity with this parable has led us to think we know the story often better than what we really do. And many people think they know what Jesus was teaching in this parable, but the truth is many people are just flat out wrong. The title we give to this parable often leads us astray. Of course, there is a lot to learn about being a good neighbor from this parable, but that is only a very small part of what Jesus is teaching. Jesus taught this parable to teach us how short we all fall to what God's law actually requires of us. Jesus explains why all of our good works and all of our religious practices and religious observances are never enough to gain favor with God. Jesus teaches this specific parable to show us what God's law requires from all of us. And thereby, he systematically shatters all the hopes and all the dreams and all the aspirations of every quote-unquote religious person who was thinking that observance to traditions and religious practices would ever be enough to get them into heaven. And to understand the full intent of this parable, we have to look at the full context. Uh, many times when we read this parable, we begin maybe at verse number 30 here in, in Luke chapter 10, but the context actually begins a lot earlier. So I want you to notice first the trap. Jump down at the beginning of Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10 begins with Jesus in the northern region of Israel named Galilee. This is a place where it always seems that Jesus was facing constant opposition from so-called religious leaders. In the beginning of this chapter, we see Jesus sending out 70 disciples on a final mission to preach the gospel to the cities there in that northern region of Galilee. He knows that the disciples are going to face many challenges. And so I want you to notice how he instructs them in verses 10 through 12 here in Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10, verses 10 through 12, as he's sending out these 70 laborers, these 70 disciples, notice how he instructs them in verses 10 through 12. But into whatsoever city you enter, and they receive you not, go your ways out into the streets of the same and say, even the very dust of your city, which cleaveth on us, we do wipe off against you. Notwithstanding, be ye sure of this, that the kingdom of God is come nigh unto you. But I say unto you that it shall be more tolerable in that day for Sodom than for that city. Now, in the following four verses, 
Jesus would speak some of the most frightening words ever spoken. As he condemns three specific towns, he names them where he had already ministered a great deal. And notice what he says here, verses 13 through 16. Woe unto thee, Chorazin! Woe unto thee, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works had been done in Tyre and Sidon, which had been done in you, they had a great while ago repented, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it shall be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon at the judgment than for you. And thou, Capernaum, which art exalted to heaven, shalt be thrust down to hell." He that heareth you, heareth me, and he that despiseth you, despiseth me, and he that despiseth me, despiseth him that sent me. Naturally, such harsh words probably angered the religious leaders of the day who were in this region of Galilee hearing this condemnation already opposed to Jesus. They didn't like him to begin with. They made that very clear their opposition to him the moment he opened his mouth and said anything. And what we see then, when we jump down to verse number 25 here in Luke chapter 10, we find a lawyer step up to the forefront and ask Jesus a question about eternal life. Now, this is a complete trap. It is a, a trick question as the intent was to cause Jesus to stumble and to be embarrassed. But notice what verse number 25 says. And behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tempted him, saying, Master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, I am so thankful when the Bible does so much of the work for us where we don't even have to speculate what was on the mind of the individual asking the question because the Bible flat out tells us, behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tempted him. Tempted him. We already know the thought process of this man. We know that whatever is going to come after, however perfect the question may be, and this is one of the greatest questions you can ever ask, the intent was not to really get an answer. The intent was to tempt him, to trick him, to trap Jesus in some way so that Jesus might stumble in some capacity. This lawyer was used to being the smartest man in every room that he entered into. And so as he comes to Jesus, he's thinking, here is yet another person that I'm going to outsmart with my knowledge and my intellect. And this question was probably one question in a long series of questions that he intended on asking. But this is the first domino that he needed to push over in order for Jesus to, to answer it. And then the next series of questions would follow and he'd have him hooked and he'd have everyone around knowing how smart he was and how much of a fool Jesus was. All of which he was hoping to be impress, impressing everyone else and embarrass Jesus. And this lawyer again, was used to this. He was used to having people acknowledge him, praise him, and, and be, be infinitely smarter than any, everyone else he came in contact with. And despite the fact that he asked this question to trap Jesus, as I mentioned, this was probably the greatest question ever asked. What shall I do to inherit eternal life? This was the question on the heart of Nicodemus in John chapter 3 when he came and he met Jesus by night. This was the question that was raised by the rich young ruler as he came to Jesus and asked him, what must I do to inherit eternal life? This was the question frequently asked to Jesus throughout his public ministry because this was the nagging question on the hearts and minds of everyone. What must I do to inherit eternal life? The Old Testament promised eternal life through faith in God, faith in a promised Messiah. 
Jesus himself taught the message of eternal life, which is the central theme of the Gospels. He said in John 3, 16 to Nicodemus, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. He said in John 11, 25 and 26, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. He said in John 4, 14, But whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. But the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. Jesus also said in John 5, 24, Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. Now, there are, are many more occasions where Jesus taught on eternal life, on salvation through faith in him every time he was asked about it, which is strange because the Jews were taught that through observance of traditions, circumcision, ceremonies, different traditions, different festivities, different ceremonies, that they automatically qualified for eternal life. But clearly, there was still this, this nagging seed of doubt in their minds that led them to constantly ask Jesus this question, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Their rabbis told them that they were good they were taken care of through religious practices, through observances, but their hearts accused them. And they were terrified at the thought that maybe all of these outward observances, all of these outward signs of religious practices would not be enough. Their hearts were telling them that there is a good chance that when their life here on earth is over, they might not actually be good enough to enter the kingdom of God. So despite the fact that this question here in Luke chapter 10 was asked as a trap to Jesus, it was a fantastic question, a great question, a question that Jesus constantly received. And if you notice in verse number 26, Jesus answered this question with a couple questions of his own. Notice what he says. Verse 26, he said unto him, what is written in the law? How readest thou? Now Jesus was referring to the law of God as referenced back in, in Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verses 4 and 5, which state, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart and with all thy soul and with all thy might. Now, the lawyer, he responded by quoting that same passage, but he actually added more to that, and he added the words from Leviticus chapter 19 and verse 18 as well, which say to love your neighbor as yourself. And notice how he responds in verse 27. And he answering said, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy strength, and with all thy mind. So he's quoting directly from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5, but then he adds, Leviticus 19, he says, And thy neighbor as thyself. Now, the lawyer's answer was perfect. This is exactly what is required. This is exactly what he expected to, what Jesus expected him to say. And Jesus tells him such, but he follows it up with, This do, and thou shalt live. Notice in verse number 28. He said unto him, Thou hast answered right. This is perfect. You couldn't have said it any better. But this do, he says, and thou shalt live. You want the answer to how to have eternal life? You know what to do. Now just go and do it. This is what Jesus tells him. This, he says, 
verse 28, this do and thou shalt live. That is a, a perfect summary of God's law there in verse number 27. This was the same answer that Jesus gave to another lawyer in Matthew chapter 22 who asked him what the greatest commandment was. We just looked at that earlier this morning. This lawyer here in Luke chapter 10, he answers Jesus' question perfectly. If we could, if we could answer exactly as how the lawyer answered in verse number 27, we would not need any other rules. If we would just do what is right there in verse number 27, if we understood that, if we did it, if we applied it, there would be no other rules necessary for us. If we can follow these two things, the first and, great, the first and, and second great commandment, if we could do these things, nothing else would be ever required of us. But as we talked about this morning, none of us are going to be able to do that. This lawyer's answer was perfect, but he failed to do what was actually required of him. At first glance, there would seem to be a problem with what Jesus said to this man. If you look at it again, he said, This do, in verse number 28, and thou shalt live. Jesus didn't tell this man to believe on him as a savior, but to obey the law. Now, you're probably thinking, well, there's, there's something not adding up here. Because Galatians 2.16 tells us that, it says, Knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith of Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Jesus Christ, that we might be justified by the faith of Christ, not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. So what is Jesus saying? What is really going on here? What is Jesus telling this man? So here's the trap, but notice, secondly, the stubborn heart. Now, Jesus wasn't teaching a works-based salvation. I don't want you to think that. I don't want you to think that I'm preaching that at all. That's not what I'm saying. All he was doing, all Jesus was doing here was holding up a mirror, the mirror of God's law to this lawyer to show that he was guilty. We mentioned how Jesus did this to the rich young ruler, the same thing, who was convinced that he was good because he had gone and redefined what it means to be good. And Jesus says, I'll tell you what good means, and this is what it means to be perfect, to be God. And he says, now what do you think of yourself when you look in the mirror of what it means to be good? And the man said, oh, perfect. I'm doing all of that. I've kept all these commandments since I was young. And what Jesus is doing to this lawyer here in Luke chapter 10 is the same thing. The man says, I know what the law requires. It requires all of these things. It requires to, to love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy strength, with all thy mind, and to love thy neighbor as thyself. And Jesus says, perfect. That is exactly it. Now go and do it. And he holds up the mirror and he says, have you done it? Look at yourself in the mirror. Does your life demonstrate that you have actually done what you know you need to do? So this is what he's doing here. He's not saying that you're going to be saved by these actions. If the lawyer was an honorable man, he would have acknowledged that he did not love God as he should, much less his neighbor. This man should have been deeply convicted by what Jesus said here. He should have walked away completely guilty after what, what has been said here. His follow-up response should have demonstrated great humility, but what we see instead is a tremendous amount of self-righteous pride. Notice what happens in verse number 29. Now, we already know that he came to Jesus tempting him, so he's really not interested in, in finding out what to do to have eternal life, and Jesus knows that. But notice how the man responds in verse number 29. After the mirror is, is shown to him, God's law, this is what God's law requires, and without Jesus having to say, you haven't done it, the man knows he hasn't done it. And that's why verse 29 says, but he, willing to justify himself, because he knows he hasn't been perfect, willing to justify himself, said unto Jesus, and who is my neighbor? And who is my neighbor? Again, the, the Bible tells us what is really going on in the heart of this lawyer. He knew he was guilty. You're not trying to justify yourself when you know you're innocent. He knows he's guilty. 
He knew that he was condemned by God's law, but he wanted to convince everyone else that he's a righteous man. This was the problem with legalists. This was the problem with the Pharisees and all the other self-righteous people who were adamantly opposed to Jesus. They were very much like the crowd that is mentioned in Luke chapter 18, verse number 9, where it says, which trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. Jesus was very quick to call out such people as he did in, in Luke 16, verse 15, where it says, Ye are they which justify yourselves before men, but God knoweth your hearts. For that which is highly esteemed among men is abomination in the sight of God. They were guilty. They were guilty of what, of what Paul spoke of in Romans chapter 10, verse number 3, which says, For they being ignorant of God's righteousness and going, up, going about to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. This lawyer here was so desperate to make himself look good to everyone else, he didn't care what God thought of him one bit. So instead of having the right response to Jesus' reply of, this do and thou shalt live, done, right? Okay, here's the commandment. I've just quoted it to him. He says, I'm right. He says, go and do it. And instead of going and doing it, he says, well, then who's my neighbor? He skips right over the first part of it. That the first great commandment, which is to love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and all your strength, and he, he, as if he's mastered that part. I've gotten that first part taken care of, but I need you to specify who's my neighbor, because this is the part I struggle with. Thinking that he can somehow get off by a technicality. Well, I'm not, I don't have to love anyone because everyone's my, everyone's my enemy and not my neighbor. Now, instead of dealing with the real issue, he thinks he can steer the conversation into a completely different direction by focusing Jesus' attention elsewhere. The traditional way that rabbis would interpret Leviticus 19, verse 18, which is where he quoted to put that last part on verse number 27, which, and thy neighbor as thyself. Was, this was mentioned by Jesus in Matthew chapter 5 and verse number 43. And Jesus said this. He says, you have heard that it hath been said, thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. This, this is what had been taught. And that's why Jesus says, you have heard. Not that the Bible said this, but this is what had been taught. How the rabbis, how the Jewish leaders had been teaching people, contrary to the word of God. Thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. Now this takes all the force out of the command to love your neighbor. Because now you can differentiate between who's your neighbor and who's your enemy. Well, I don't love him because he's my enemy. And according to this guy, I don't have to love him because I can hate my enemy and I can love my neighbor. And if no one's my neighbor, I don't have to love anyone at all. Perfect, right? So we can just take that second great commandment and throw it out, not deal with it at all. Right? Because everyone is my enemy and I hate everyone and I don't love anyone. So it's just... The way that it was taught. And that's why Jesus said in Matthew 5, 43, you have heard that it hath been said, thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. It takes all the force out of the command to love your neighbor because if a person is free to hate his enemy, then he can tell everyone his enemy, call everyone his enemy and not worry about loving anyone because he has no neighbors. And thus, he's not in violation of any commandment. And this is where this lawyer was trying to go. He was hoping to get out of the guilt of the condemnation of not loving his neighbor, not to mention the fact that he had not loved God the way that he should, but he's just focusing on the second commandment. He's doing so by trying to interpret the command a different way. He was trying to make a distinction between a neighbor and an enemy. And if he could get Jesus to admit that there's a difference between the two, 
then he'd win the argument and he'd justify himself. And Jesus knew where this man was going and, that's, and, that, and, that, and that he was condemned where he stood. But instead, Jesus chose to exemplify the same mercy and the same compassion that he would illustrate through the following parable. And this was the principle that Jesus taught. Regardless of what people wanted to believe, uh, well, listen to what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5 and verse number 44. I read verse 43, which again said, You have heard that it has been said, Thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. The next verse, Matthew 5, 44 says, But I say unto you, Love your enemies. Bless them that curse you. Do good to them that hate you. And pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. So despite the fact that they had heard because their religious leaders had told them it's okay to love your neighbor and hate your enemy, Jesus pulls the rug out from underneath them and says, I'm changing everything, folks. Because this, what you've been heard, has been wrong from the beginning. God's word declared all along that we're supposed to love everyone. And he does so by telling them a parable with a very convicting lesson, with a proper understanding of the context. Let's go ahead and look at the parable. Follow along as I read, beginning with verse number 30, here in Luke chapter 10, and I'll read down through verse number 35. Luke 10, verse 30. And Jesus answering said, A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves, which stripped him of his raiment and wounded him and departed, leaving him half dead. And by chance there came down a certain priest that way, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. And likewise, a Levite, when he was at the place, came and looked on him and passed by on the other side. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion on him. And he went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring in oil and wine, and set him on his own beast and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And on the morrow, when he departed, he took out two pence and gave them to the host and said unto him, Take care of him, and whatsoever thou spendest more, when I come again, I will repay thee. Again, Jesus didn't have to entertain this lawyer anymore. He could have ended this conversation, pronounced the man guilty where he stood, but instead he showed this man grace and compassion. The parable that Jesus told him was like all the parables that he teaches. It had one main point and it had several, several secondary implications. And I want to take a closer look at this parable. And, and notice, notice third, the dangerous journey and the attack. The dangerous journey and the attack. Verse number 30 once more. And Jesus answering said, A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves, which stripped him of his raiment and wounded him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now these were actual places that Jesus was describing. This was a real journey that a person living in that time would have made. This road from Jerusalem to Jericho, history tells us, was notorious for being a very dangerous road to travel. Just in, in, in the land itself, the topography of the land wasn't conducive for good travel it, with such a treacherous mountain terrain. And because, and, it, and because of that, it provided all sorts of little spots here and there for, for thieves to hide out, to camp out, and to wait on victims who were innocent travelers without any sort of sus suspicions that they're going to be attacked. And it wasn't a huge surprise that Jesus' story started the way it did with a lone traveler on a dangerous road it was, that was ambushed by thieves and left for dead. So here's the attack, but notice fourth, the priest and the Levite. 
While the man is left for dead, Jesus introduces two other characters, which at a very critical time in this man's life offered a glimmer of hope. If you imagine, if you put yourselves in the shoes of, of these individuals that Jesus mentions, imagine you're the man that has been traveling and you've been, caught, you've been caught up by thieves, you've been beaten, you've been left for dead, everything has been stripped away from you and you're left there waiting and hoping that anyone would come by and all of a sudden, there's a priest that comes by. Later on, there's a Levite that comes by. But the first person you see, you're thinking, finally, some help has arrived. Now, the man is left for dead on a road where travelers could be scarce. Anyone would be a sight for sore eyes, especially someone who was beaten and dying and had no other help. And notice what it says in verses 31 and 32. And by chance, there came down a certain priest that way. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. And likewise, a Levite, when he was at the place, came and looked on him and passed by on the other side. So initially, it starts off encouraging, right? A man is beaten, he's left for dead, someone shows up. Someone's passing by. By chance, someone happens to be on the same road, at the same place. Not long after this man has been beaten and left for dead, he's capable of helping out. By chance, he's there. It sounds encouraging at first. That two different people were traveling down the same road where this man was left, especially when the traveler, the priest, is supposed to be a man of God. This priest would have surely been familiar with all the Old Testament commands to love your neighbor, to not shut his ears to the cries of the poor. This priest would have surely devoted himself to a life of greater purpose, a life of greater duty to help those who were in such critical conditions. But whatever glimmer of hope that dying man had longed for and clung to when he saw the priest would be short-lived. When the priest sees the man in distress, he purposely avoids him, passes by on the other side, the Bible says. There was no compassion shown. There was no desire to help this man in the least. There is no other conclusion that you could draw from this. It's crystal clear that the priest had no compassion. There is nothing else. Remember, the lawyer had asked, and the, the, the first question, the, the question that he asked to bring on this parable, verse number 29, and who is my neighbor? That's what led to this parable. Who is my neighbor? This is the question the lawyer asked, hoping to be able to make a distinction between a neighbor and an enemy. But Jesus flipped the question on its head and established that having compassion on those in need should never be selective. It's never a matter of, okay, you see someone in need. Now, is this a friend? Is this an enemy? I have to decipher between one or the other before I even lift a hand and lift a finger to help him out. And this is what he's getting at, that it should never be selective. In other words, the duty of the second great commandment to love thy neighbor as thyself, Loving your neighbor isn't contingent on figuring out who qualifies as your neighbor, which is the technicality that this lawyer was hoping to get off on. The duty of the commandment is to be neighborly to all people, even strangers. The full meaning of loving your neighbor includes the principle that Jesus emphasized back in Matthew 5:44, which again says, Love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. The priest here represents anyone with a full knowledge of God's word and a familiarity with God's law who is expected to help, but doesn't. Now, the next man that came was the Levite. Now, all priests were Levites, but not all Levites were priests. They may have served in different roles in the temple. Some were assistants to the priests. Some were officers in the temple. Others worked in maybe a more behind-the-scenes role in the temple. But all Levites devoted their lives to religious service, so they were all expected to have some scriptural knowledge. 
Nevertheless, when this Levite, the second man, came to the place where the wounded man was lying and dying, he did the same thing, and he avoided the man at all costs, just like the priest before him. Once again, another example of a person lacking compassion for another human being in need. And notice what Jesus had prayed earlier in Luke chapter 10 and verse number 21. Notice what he said in verse number 21. In that hour, Jesus rejoiced in spirit and said, I thank thee, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that thou hast hid these things from the wise and the prudent and hast revealed them unto babes. Even so, Father, for so it seemed good in thy sight. Now the priest and the Levite, they embodied the wise and the prudent that are mentioned there in verse number 21. They represented the best and the brightest of the culture, the most educated, the most intellectual, the most religious, but they didn't know God. Though they may have claimed to have known God, they may have claimed to have loved God, their lack of obedience to God's commands manifested their true unsaved nature. They're nothing more than religious hypocrites eager to observe ceremonial law and traditions, even devoting their lives to service in the temple, but lacking any true virtue. Many times we read this story and are, are quick to condemn the priest and the Levite for being so inhumane and often miss the bigger picture. These men are indeed guilty of callous disregard for the needy, but their attitude is precisely what we're seeing today often in our own hearts. We may not do things as blatantly as the priest and the Levite did by almost stepping right over a person in need to get to where we need to go. But we all stand guilty before the law with its demands for perfection. Jesus makes this point crystal clear when he introduces the third man, or the fourth, the Samaritan. Notice fifth, the, the unexpected Samaritan. Look at verse number 33. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion on him. Now, of the three men that came by, only the Samaritan had compassion on the wounded man, who, context tells us, most likely was Jewish. Though Jesus doesn't explicitly tell us, it would have been clear based on his audience, as well as the fact that the original the, the person traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho, this, this would have been a route that was only traveled pretty much by Jews. Gentiles rarely traveled this way, much less Samaritans. And with the well-known rift between the Jews and the Samaritans, the Samaritan would have been the last person the audience that Jesus spoke to would have expected to have come across in that, that wounded man, much less help him. Jews and Samaritans had a, a mutual hostility towards each other. They did everything they could to avoid one another. It was just expected. It was just the way that things were. So here we have a Samaritan man who the Jews would view as a mortal enemy. So if we're going to divide people into neighbors and enemies, Samaritans would fit into that category as enemies to the Jews. They viewed them as mortal enemies of the Jews, especially to a Jewish traveler. If the priest and the Levite wouldn't stop to help a fellow Jew, it would probably be expected that the Samaritan would just finish the job of the thieves and kill the man and take whatever was left. Because they were viewed as mortal enemies. The traveler being a, a, a Jew who was beaten and left for dead, the Samaritan coming knowing that we don't get along. 
The very least, he would have stepped over the man like everyone else and just gone on by, but you would have expected that with the hostility and the mutual hostility, he would have probably come and just finished the job off, killed the man, take whatever he left, and just been on his way. And that is when Jesus completely surprises them and closes off verse number 33 by saying that the Samaritan saw the wounded man and had compassion on him. This was a very subtle rebuke directed at the lawyer who raised the question in the first place. Status and position which the priest and the Levite had does nothing to make a person fit for the kingdom of heaven. Notice sixth, the Samaritan's compassion. Look at verse number 33 again. But a certain Samaritan as he journeyed came where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion on him. All three men all saw the wounded man lying there on the road, but the priest and the Levite showed no compassion when the Samaritan did. And I want you to notice how he took care of this man in verse number 34. It says, And he went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring in oil and wine, and set him on his own beast, and brought him to an inn, and took care of him. This Samaritan had to use all of his own possessions to help the wounded man. He was incredibly gen generous in how he used his own possessions. He made sure to take care of this man properly. He didn't just drop a first aid kit off of him and say, all right, buddy, I'm on my way. Bind up your wounds yourself. Take care of yourself. There's a few bandages and some gauze in there. Do what you can with it. I'm out of here. No. He took care of the man the best way he could. He helped him. He bound up his wounds. He, he bandaged him up. And Jesus purposely stresses the generosity of the Samaritan to demonstrate his point. The Samaritan put the wounded man on his own beast, the Bible says, most likely a donkey. And then he walked the rest of the way to this inn. Now, we don't know the duration. We don't know how long it took. But he's walking the entire way. This Samaritan didn't just do the bare minimum and call it a day. He didn't just manage the man's wounds and leave him there on the road. He made sure to do everything in his power to make sure that this man would make a full recovery. Even when he brought him to the inn, he stayed and took care of him even longer. He stayed with him. He nursed him back to health, continuing to treat his wounds, providing him food and everything else he needed to make a full recovery. He stayed with him through the night because verse 35 tells us, it says, as he departed, it says, and on the morrow when he departed. So he stayed with him at least an entire night. He made sure that he made it through the night. He made sure that he was taken care of in that morning. He paid two pence, the Bible says, which would have covered the cost of the room and the cost of provisions and food for two months. It is truly remarkable how compassionate the Samaritan was to this man, especially when you consider that they were supposed to be mortal enemies. If there's anyone that should have fought and beaten this man to death, it should have been the Samaritan, not the thieves, not the priest or the Levite. The Samaritan should have done this. The Samaritan sacrificed his possessions, his time, his money to take care of a man he didn't know because... He was concerned with meeting the needs of his neighbor. His heart was full of love from the beginning to the point that when he encountered this wounded man on the road, there was no hesitation. He didn't stop to ask the, ask the question that the lawyer asked, and, and who is my neighbor? Sir, can you tell me, are you Jewish? Because I'm trying to determine whether or not I should help you. The more important question we should be asking is, whose neighbor am I? And the answer to that question is, anyone in need. But if we're being honest about the story, we would probably all say that the Samaritan's generosity to this man was probably a tad excessive. I mean, how many of us would do what he did? If we were in the position of the Samaritan, would we have done everything he did to help this man? 
When was the last time you set aside everything, everything to help a complete stranger in a desperate situation? Better yet, when is the last time you did something like this to someone you viewed as an enemy? Did you risk criticism and defilement in order to minister to someone's needs? Did you make sure that you provided everything the person needed to dress his wounds, to feed him, to set him up in a hotel, to stay with him throughout the night, and to make sure he was okay, to pay his bills, to pay for the hotel room, for his provisions, for his food and medical care for the next several weeks? And then leave him with a blank check saying, if there's more, here's the check to cover everything else. When's the last time any of us have done something like that? Notice seventh, limitless love. Limitless love. You may not have done this for someone else, but you have surely done this for yourself. We take care of ourselves the best way possible. The closest we might get to self-sacrifice is probably with a family member. But even then, that may be a stretch. Not many would do this for a stranger, much less someone they view as an enemy. I'm sure there have been times in your life when you have done something generous for a stranger, but do we truly love strangers like this Samaritan did? And do we do this all the time? The truth is that we don't. Jesus is telling this story to describe a rare kind of love that knows no limits. Keep in mind that the story is meant to teach a lesson to this lawyer who is wanting to quantify who deserves love, such love to be shown to them. The lawyer originally asked, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus told this parable to illustrate the impossibly high standard that the law sets for us. And as much as it serves as a rebuke to the lawyer, I think it serves as a rebuke to us as well. If we genuinely loved our neighbors the way that we loved ourselves, the generosity that the Samaritan showed, it wouldn't seem out of the ordinary. We'd look at that and we think, yeah, that makes sense. That's what we would do for anyone else, right? But that's not what we would do for anyone else. That's why when we look at this and, we, and when we really figure out how much he did to take care of this man, we think, holy cow, I would have never done that. I would have handed the man maybe a bottle of water, maybe handed him a gospel track and said, I've done my service. I've helped out someone in need today. Thank you. Maybe I'll get them some food and we'll call it a day and we'll feel good about it, won't we? When's the last time we've done this to someone? He's telling the story to show how rare this love is that knows no limits. If we genuinely loved our neighbors the way that we loved ourselves, because there's nothing you would withhold from yourself to make sure that you're taken care of, this generosity that we see here wouldn't be so out of the ordinary. At the end of the story, Jesus turns, to the, turns the lawyer's question back to him. Notice in verse number 36. He says, Which now of these three, the priest, the Levite, and the Samaritan, which now of these three thinkest thou was neighbor unto him that fell among the thieves? There was only one way that the lawyer could respond. There's, there's no other way. The, the, the parable was crystal clear. There's only one person that was a true neighbor. And notice the response in verse number 37. And he said, he that showed mercy on him. He that showed mercy on him. Now the final words of Jesus here should have invoked a deep conviction and a humble confession 
of the man's own inability because God's law demands that we love like the Samaritan all the time with all people. Jesus says there, Then said Jesus unto him, Go, and do thou likewise. He basically says the same thing that he says at the end of verse number 28. This do, and thou shalt live. Go and do it. Go and do it. You've told me you know the answer to eternal life. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy strength, with all thy mind, and to love thy neighbor as thyself. Thou hast answered right, this do, and thou shalt live. He asked him, which one of these three was a neighbor? He that showed mercy on him. Jesus said unto him, go and do thou likewise. This lawyer should have immediately realized that he could never live up to this standard because this standard demands perfection. None of us are going to be perfect. He should have fallen at the feet of Jesus and begged for forgiveness because all that this law can do is show us our imperfections and show us our need for the Savior. None of us are going to be perfect. None of us are going to love God the way that we should, much less our neighbors the way that we're intended to. And here's the deeper lesson. The way that the Samaritan cared for the wounded traveler is the way that God cares for sinners. In fact, God's love for man is infinitely greater than what the Samaritan did for this wounded traveler which was already way over the top. In Romans chapter 5 and verses 6 through 8, it tells us, it says, for, we, for when we were yet without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet peradventure for a good man some would even dare to die. But God commended his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Now, I know those are very familiar verses to all of us, but how many of us really think about what those verses are saying? Because those verses are telling us about the love that God has for us, which is just astronomically greater than anything we will ever imagine, infinitely greater than any love that we can ever demonstrate on our own, and that is the purpose behind it. God's love for us is so great that it cannot be possibly explained in words. What Christ has done for us far exceeds what the Samaritan did for this wounded man in this parable. Jesus was ready to forgive the sin of the lawyer who approached him here in verse number 25 in Luke chapter 10. But the lawyer wasn't ready to throw himself at the mercy of Christ and trust in him for salvation. Remember, he only asked that question, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Tempting him, trying to trap Jesus. It was a great question to ask, the greatest question to ever ask. But he wasn't interested in hearing the answer. I hope we're properly motivated as we hear this parable, not just to be perfecting our love toward our neighbors, but to also be drawn to our Savior, whose perfect love has made the atonement for our sin. Would you bow with me in prayer here this evening? Heavenly Father, thank you so much, Lord, for opening up your word to us. Lord, I pray that a parable that has been familiar to us, Lord, very familiar to us as we've used some of this language, Lord, to describe various sacrificial acts of kindness that we've seen around us. Lord, I pray that we would understand just what this lesson is really teaching. There is a love that you have shown to us that far exceeds the love and the compassion that the Samaritan ever showed. And Lord, it is a love that we ought to strive to mirror. It is a love, Lord, that we ought to strive to emulate as we look at Christ and understand, Lord, how much he has sacrificed for us, how much he has loved us as he has made full and complete atonement for our sin upon the cross. 
Lord, we know that the, the debt that was paid is a debt that can never be, Lord, uh, repaid. It is not something that we're ever going to be able to pay off or reimburse. We're thankful that it doesn't have to be. Lord, thank you for loving us when we were unlovable and we were yet sinners, dying for us, Lord, and when there was nothing worth dying for. I pray, Lord, that as we learn about how we ought to love you, how we ought to love our neighbors, that we would go and do likewise. Help us in the struggle, Lord, for we want to be like the lawyer, and we want to make a distinguishing factor between who is a neighbor and who is an enemy, as if somehow trying to justify who we can love and who we can hate. Lord, help hate to be the furthest thing from our mind. Help us to love, help us to have compassion on those around us. Lord, those that we may have otherwise walked on by, passed by on the other side, help us to have our eyes intently looking at different opportunities to demonstrate your love and your compassion to those around us. In Christ's name we pray, amen.